You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by HuntStand. HuntStand is the number one hunting app in the country, and at only $29.99, HuntStand offers a ton of functionality for hunters all over the country. Whether you own your own property or strictly hunt public, you can choose from over a dozen base maps, view property ownership information, 3D mapping, local weather, log your sightings and harvest, as well as use their trail cam management software, and print maps from your hunt areas. Download it today at the Apple App Store or Google Play. Hunt Stand. Upgrade your arsenal. Welcome to the Huntivore Podcast. Powered by Sportsman's Nation, where we celebrate the hunting and fishing lifestyle through the utilization and consumption of our wild game. No egos. Fork in hand, beer in the other. No status. A piece of red meat on a hot grill and turn it into a burnt offering. Just catch it, cut it, cook it. This is episode 88, Huntivore's Big Why and Self-Reliance. On this episode of Huntivore, Nick is on a solo ramble on this one. Being the first podcast episode of the year, he wanted to get himself right with his thoughts. Looking back into 2021, a glaring theme was supply chain issues. Trying to combat this problem, Nick has declared the word of 2022 as self-reliance and highlighted steps taken to separate from the domestic food system that is struggling. Nick also answers for himself the big question of why do you hunt? Not to try to condone his actions, but to solidify his passions for natural wild protein and elevating it to a desirable, nutritious food. Before we begin, as we start a new year, I want to highlight the partners of Huntivore. First is Tapacute, a family-owned and operated company creating wireless multi-probe food thermometers for in the kitchen or at the barbecue. Jacob and Gina are amazing people to work with, and their passions align seamlessly with my own. I'm so happy to be working with them here in 2022. A new partner to the show is Meat! Exclamation point. Based in Missouri, USA, Meat brings commercial quality meat processing equipment directly to the home butcher. I'm excited to start this partnership because they approach wild game processing as seriously as we do. Down in the show notes, I will have links to both their pages, and each of them offer a 10% discount using the coupon code. So check them out, and thanks. All right, on with the show. Well, hey, folks. 
gorgeous last day of 2021. It's above freezing now, and we're getting some snow melt. In fact, my middle boy and I just got back from a go-kart ride. That was one of the big gifts from Nana Papa was a go-kart so that they could tear around the family properties. I can tell you, that middle boy knows how to tear around. In fact, I still have mud uh, somehow down in my shirt, uh, even through a a Carhartt jacket. But we're back from that. Upstairs, I can hear my oldest and my wife tuning guitars and trying to play musical instruments. And prior to the ride, I got to cut up uh, a friend's deer. I was still working on on that, so we got it parted out, cleaned up, and it's ready, ready to get vacked. So I wanted to, for this episode, take a little bit of a different path. Um, not that we won't talk kitchen fair or have delicious items on the menu or really be talking about what is the best way to use a certain cut. That is, that is what we do here, and that is what I'm going to continue to do. But I wanted to take this first episode of 2022 and go back to a very rudimentary question, and that would be the question, why? I feel that in this day and age, you can't just do something to do something. Everything is questioned, whether it's your political stance, whether it's your religion, whether it's wherever Whatever avenue of life you are going and someone doesn't understand it, one of their big questions is why. And it's it's a very important question. You want to be able to ask that of others, why do you do this? And then at the same time, that opens the door for them to then follow up with questions like, well, how can I get involved or how do I make this a part of my life or Why would I even want to do that? But in the realm of folks who grow their own produce, who acquire their own protein, who take self-reliance in account for when it comes to their food, there's a lot of questions around why. Are you doing it as as a preparing for something? Are you doing it because of health reasons? Folks are going to ask why who are outside of this circle. And that's what I've kind of been doing in these last couple weeks of 2021 is just with all the questioning of why, 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 being able to firmly stand in front of whoever it would be and be able to then tell them, Why is it that I go spend hours in the woods to chase down a critter that doesn't know that I'm there and ultimately end its life, (laughs) meticulously take it apart, and then enjoy that animal throughout the whole year? And I've had several conversations with folks who are open to the idea of wanting to do something similar with their life. I have a friend who is curious about getting into hunting himself. And it's not that he was outside of 
the idea of hunting. He lived in the area, and so he understands what what is happening. That's not a foreign idea to him. But he had some big questions of why why is this going to be important? Why do I do it year in and year out? And how can I begin to start that? How can I begin to understand and get this amazing gift of wild food that I can then enjoy? Um, He's very much on the idea of I want to break away from these systems that have been created because he feels that they are faulty, that the systems in place, like our food system, is is basically being overwhelmed. And that's not due to anybody's like greediness or anybody's, uh, I don't know, wrongdoing for have this happen. It is that we have a lot of people here in the United States and a lot of people enjoy meat and want to get meat to sustain themselves and their families and the backlog of animals after this pandemic and slaughterhouses being basically dated out for the next year on when animals are brought in and just a lot of hoops to go through, whether it's the inspection policy, whether it's the processing, whether it's the getting it to the grocery store. There's just so many hurdles and links along the way that it opens the door for something to go wrong. And we have witnessed that a number of times these past couple of years. And he wants to get away from that. He's a realist, though. He realizes that, you know what, I, I strive to be a, folk, or a person that gets off the grid, that I don't need anything else to sustain me. I can power my own place. I can heat my own home. I can X, Y, Z every process that I want to be able to do. But again, like I said, he's a realist. He realizes that not all that can be accomplished. And this conversation that I had, had me thinking about this past year and like the word that we used a lot this past year or that we heard a lot I would say would be supply chain issues or delays due to supply chain or due to labor somewhere along the line the supply chain was screwed up and a lot of that was for just consumer products um we, you know the the tankers all out in the bay right now of is it San Francisco or San Diego I don't know which one but anyway the backlog of all these ships it's it's a reality that it's if we're going to rely upon someone else to bring me the goods and services that I need I'm going to have to be patient I'm going to have to really really learn to be patient and then there's the idea that You know, why do you do what you do? Well, I would love to shorten that chain of folks that I rely on for my food. I would love to shorten the time and process of the the items that I'm going to serve to my family. I would like to be able to go from woods to kitchen and 
my hands be the only ones to touch that. I find value in that. And this discussion that I had with a friend who is very open to the idea of learning the ropes and wanting to, you know, get get a beer and, and talk about this and kind of help equip him to to mentor him through this next year of of hunting to at least attempt it. I see that that this idea is is one that I think folks are really thinking of, you know, I'm sick of the supply chain issues of 2021 and we're going to change the the word. We're going to have a, a new word be 2022 and that that word is going to be the idea of self-reliance that we've seen the issues everywhere else and it's now time that we take some of this into our own hands and a lot of this has been ideas that we've had in the pre in previous that I want to be able to take uh I want to be able to take the animal and care for it as far as like process you know do an ethical kill process the animal in my own facility be able to then feed that to my family and share that wealth with my friends and family that are that are beyond my individual household. And so this idea of self-reliance has just been kind of like popping around in my head a little bit. And I thought this would be a great way to kick off the 2022 year. And I've I've been kind of stewing on this idea and just talking to other people and especially the, uh, my friend that I was talking with. And it it got me excited. You know, it, it, it's one of those things, this could be a topic being taken as, you know, uh, a means to an end where we've seen failure, we feel the pain of it, and now we're, we're looking to, to move on from it. But I wanted to focus on that why I do things because I've had these answers of why for a long period of time. And when, when I do get asked or folks find out that I'm a hunter, it's not a, you know, it's not a big surprise. Um, but they're like, oh, you're into hunting. And yes, yes, I am. And then questions go on from that of like, well, do you like to go for uh, big trophy animals? That you know, these probing questions that folks want to get to know and see about you. And have you shot anything really, really big? Or you you're just uh, out there for the meat? And is that just a, a phrase you say to kind of just disarm people? And and it's not because. The reason I'm out there is yes to to feed my myself and my family the most natural uh, protein that we can find, and that it it only ta- costs. Well, yeah, it, I was going to say it costs a lot as I'm looking at all of my equipment here <laughs> here in my little den, but at the same time, it costs time and effort, and it costs, um, yeah, time away from family. Um, for, I don't want to say long periods of time, but shorter periods of time and an investment into being able to hone my skills, to be a, to have myself disciplined with the implement that I'm using, such as my bow. And to know that with confidence, I can take that animal because with the taking quickly of that animal's life, it's going to result in a better product that I get to enjoy. Why is this so important to you? And why is it that you're going to spend all this time when you do know 
domestic growers. Your family has a farm. Your uh, your friends down the road have a dairy farm or have a, a beef farm. You know individuals where you can get uh, domestic meat. Why don't you jump in on that? And I do. I, I support the community. I love to get the local beef that we've got here. I love local pork. You can't go wrong with somebody that you know is making the bacon. I mean, honestly, if you know the person who's doing it, you, it, it almost adds to the element, it adds to the flavor. And probably, you know, if it's, if it's not venison on our table, it's probably going to be turkey from, from our farm. So this idea of being able to bring my circle of, of food acquisition close and have my community involved with it, that's a great idea. And I don't diss on domestic, but let's look at the system that's been in, in front of us that we're seeing, like, like I mentioned earlier, a backlog of, of animals that these animals can't get into slaughter facilities because of the workers not being at these slaughter facilities. And I'm not talking just, I'm not talking the big ones, which they are going through the same issue. They can't push through the amount of animal to carcass to uh, butcher house as quick as they can right now because of these setbacks, because of these, uh, the staffing issues and being able to then space everybody out. They got to protect themselves as well. So the idea that you know, we're, we're behind on the domestic side means our output isn't going to be at nearly as much. And with lower output comes an increase in demand. And that's where you see then a price increase. And so folks' pocketbooks are, are hurting. And they're not paying for as much as what they would normally get. Or if they are getting the same amount, then they're paying a premium on that. And, you know, this day and age of inflation and, and prices going up, that's just a reality that we have. But then at the same time, too, like we have a food system that, you know, is there are people still going hungry. We have food banks and we have uh, food donation uh, stations and we have soup kitchens and we've got these, these other uh, facilities put in place to help that out. At some point, our food system is going to get so strained that not everybody's going to be able to get what they want or be able to get, I would say, what they need. And that's a scary situation. As hunters, we only take up like 10% of the population. And we, we gain our food from the landscape outside of that domestic system, which you would think then, hey, by... By being outside of that system and only supplementing with it, we give ourselves a little bit of a break in that domestic system. I, I like to use this idea when I do talk to somebody who is not all in on hunting, that they, they look at it as a, uh, a sole act of just like harming an animal. Where honestly, I'm like, I don't want to harm the animal, but in order for for me to, to, to get the sustenance that I need for, for my life, for my family's life, that life has to be taken. They look at it as, a, as an individual scale. But then if we look at it on, the, on a broader spectrum, that if we can work outside of this system, that 10% of the population can give a break to 
the domestic system that it's going to be able to we're, we're going to be able to feed more because we are not needing that extra steak from a beef cow but we're going to be enjoying venison or wild hog or whatever we've got in front of us our fish our, our upland birds whatever we've got we can supplement with that giving a break to the bigger broader system um and i i, th- I think back to a discussion that i had with uh shane mahoney when i had him on oh a year ago anyway too far too too long ago i need to talk with that gentleman again but he brought up an interesting point that if if we call, if we accumulate and we uh, calculate how much wild game is being taken through his initiative called the wild in, wild initiative wild food initiative the wild harvest initiative excuse me if if we if we call, or if we accumulate that and we can be able to put a number of either pounds or value or or whatever to that imagine if if that value imagine if the whole wild game uh bounty was stripped away you can't have that 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 is no longer something that that is viable and you need to then jump into this domestic system i think that is more than enough to break that break that system because you're inviting that 10% who enjoy protein, who enjoy meat, and have had it be a huge part of their diet, and you now include them into a system that is already struggling. And I know folks are making their own decisions on, on dietary uh, choices. Some people are leaning towards veganism. Some people are just, uh, I don't want to go that far and I'm going to just be a vegetarian and only select a few uh, animal products to use. And then you've got others that are saying like, well, maybe cut back on the amount of meat that I have per, per week or per day, trying to think of ways that they can do that themselves. And as far as to be able to have protein, I, I desire that every day i find it a very good fuel source i find it a way to sustain my body in a way that i i'm not left lacking either for nutrient or for i guess satisfaction or or whatever but at the same time to be able to take take that animal and utilize it to sustain my life and my my family that if we all had to jump into the domestic system, I think that we would have to make some choices, some smart choices, in order to keep that system going. So why put us into that system that would ultimately break it and when we can live in this other system that you're saying, man, you got to put a lot of effort. Why do you take the effort to go out into the woods and shoot a white-tailed deer? And one of my, that's my reason right there, I guess, is to sustain myself and my family. I guess it boils all the way down to that. And there's that element of self-reliance, the word that I chose for this year, that if I don't have to rely on a long chain of other services to get that to me, that I don't have to be patient other than patient with (laughs) <laughs> the animal coming into range and stopping broadside. I mean, you're just, you always need patience when it comes to that. 
but to be able to really jump into 2022 and answer these questions answer the question why with this is a reason and not that I'm just making that up and not that I'm using that as a way to uh, dodge heavier questions but that I'm really doing this for the food for the love of the product that comes from this if I did not love venison and if my kids did not get excited for when we were having deer steak or if we were having venny burgers if if that if that wasn't happening we wouldn't be doing this but that's why we do this is because we have the excitement around feasting upon that and that it that it does nourish us just want to take a time out and say thank you to the listeners for tuning in it really does mean a lot i would also appreciate that if you haven't already left a rating or review uh to go ahead and do that it all helps folks find us and get on board using and enjoying their wild game more feel free to chat with us and ask questions either on facebook the huntivore or instagram at huntivore got a recipe you think is dynamite and want to share or have some show topic ideas, email us at huntvor at gmail.com. For even more hunting and fishing podcasts by real, relatable sportsmen, head over to Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, which happens to be a 2% for conservation company, who give 1% of their earnings and 1% of their time helping out the wildlife and wild places we all love. Now, back to the show. And so this, yeah, the, the idea of self-reliance, the 2020 word that I'm going to use so much to combat <laughs> the, the supply chain stuff and the, the fact that people can't get what they want to get, I, in my own steps towards this grand utopia of self-reliance that I don't need anything else from the outside in order to fulfill the desires from what's on the inside, you can't do that all in one day. You can't do it completely. It's just outside the realm. So my choice for the 2022 year is we we put in a pool on the south side of our house. That was one of our, our big purchases uh, in 2021. And we thoroughly enjoyed it all summer with the kids. And they got a chance to... Uh, go through swim lessons, and now it's, yeah, Mama's all excited because she's got the perfect setup to have the kids play, to have the friends come over and play, and they all come over to our house, and she gets to be uh, in charge of that and gets to oversee that. But as we're as we're constructing the pool and we're putting the deck on the one side so that we can jump in and just enjoy these long summer soaks in that pool, we had to clear out a section of woods on the south side of our house. And so removing these trees allows us to put in the pool, let some sunlight in. But now it's also offered some great big sunny areas, specifically on the east side of this pool setup. There's a large open hillside. I don't want to say large. It's medium size. To me, it looks large. But... Having 
those trees get taken down and moved out of the way. And this past year, there was just this boom of undergrowth in that, that area. And it got me thinking and it got me really excited. Like, Hey, yeah, it is a hillside, but we could easily terrace this up with some, you know, some down wood, some down logs that we've got here and get some flat surfaces. And we got ourselves a great little garden spot. It's close to the house. It's going to get probably the most sunlight of any part of our little, um, our little piece of property. And it's small. You know, I, Jonah Curtis, uh, we talked to him a couple episodes ago. And his idea when we talked on his first episode was, you know, if you're going to have a garden, start small. You know, find something you can take on, something you can uh, uh, keep up with. If you get too big too quick, well, then you let things go. To Everything weeds out and you don't, don't go back and, and take care of it. And then eventually, like, your bounty is lessened because uh, the amount of care that you give it. But this little area would be a great start. And it's using a element of our property that there's not a whole lot. I mean, it's kind of a hillside. There's not a whole lot you can do with it unless you terrace it out and get these flat areas in there. So it'll be some fun work with uh, the skid steer and a lot of shovel time. But at the same time, moving those logs in the way, terrace this out and give myself a garden that I can then begin adding one more element of self-reliance into my food system that I'm already gaining the protein. I'm already shrinking down that process. So if it's wild game, I'm acquiring it myself. And if it's domestic, I'm going to someone that I know that I'm going to get uh, this product from. And now to take that one step further in my produce and be able to say, well, now I'm going to grow my own food. Living where we do, though, I think it's going to require a lot of uh, a lot of effort, not only in the the weeding aspect, the competition for soil, but I think it's also going to be the competition for greenery. I think I'm going to have to really find a way to keep the critters, the squirrels, the rabbits, the deer out of the said garden. Um, keeping it close proximity to the house, I think, is going to help. But I tell you, the squirrels and rabbits—they are sneaky buggers. And they love our landscaping. And I haven't put a whole lot of effort into landscaping, but it is amazing to see how a certain point during the summer, hostas become the greatest treat. So maybe they'll just stay, maybe I'll plant a whole bunch of hostas up to the one side, and maybe they'll leave my, my tomatoes and whatever else I decide to grow in that garden this year. But taking Jonah's advice, we're going to go small with it. We're gonna only going to do a few plants. We're going we're gonna to really cage them up. As far as the to, uh, as the tomatoes go, um, I'm a big I like squash, and so to have a couple squash vines out there and have those sprawl around, I think that would be really good. Um, find a way to net over the top of at least the the fruit once it's been made. Once I get a squash grown, get a wire basket put over the top of that, just so that critters don't get into trying to eat that thing before I can get my hands onto it. But anyway. I digress. So I'm answering my question why, and I'm kind of elaborating on, well, what am I going to do about it now this year? You've decided to become, take one more element of your food sustainability into your own hands. 
and not let a system take care of that. I hope you enjoyed this ramble, not because that I I don't want to have a bleak outlook. I don't want to have a look outlook that's like a doomsday and now we need to go prepper style and everybody get several freezers and fill them as quickly as possible. That's that's not where I'm going with this. But I feel like a good start to the year is to answer, you know, what am I doing and why am I doing it? And when you hear the answers of, well, Nick, why why do you continue to hunt? Why do you take all the time and effort to do this in order to go pursue animals? Uh, ultimately, that you're going to kill, you're going to then uh, take them apart, you're then going to cook them. Is Is what you're doing worth it? And absolutely, yes. Yes, it is worth it. So all that said, I'm glad that I was able to share some thoughts with you uh, on this first episode of the year. I hope that you're encouraged uh, a little bit by asking your own why questions and that you're happy with those answers. You know, why do you do this? Well, it's because my friends do it. Is that as... Is that as potent as you want it to be? And if you're going to continue to do that, maybe maybe you need to look at those reasons why. Well, I do this because I've been chasing this this buck for three years, and and I've gotten close to getting them. If you're if you're happy with that challenge, by all means, continue to go after it. The other aspect of why I do things is the element of sharing, and so I'm going to take a moment. And I'm going to share a recipe with you. It, uh, if you've got liver frozen in your freezers, this is the time that you're going to get a chance to use it. So I took a stab at a Cajun sausage, boudin, and I was very intrigued in it in the fact that it did use not only uh, some sort of uh, hard-worked muscle, um, usually done with, with pork shoulder. Um, I chose a mid roast of venison. So front shoulder, humerus bone, that mid section that does work very well in a braise or a, a, in a stew pot. I ended up taking that and going to make it into some boudin sausage balls. Also in the recipe, it calls for upwards of six ounces so, I mean, a third of a pound of liver. And usually you use, I've, I've seen you use chicken livers. I've seen them use pork livers. And I think they like to stick to that in the fact that it's going to be a milder, uh, milder liver in taste. But be it that I have this venison liver, I need to use it. I am going to end up making some boudin with it. Um didn't have my grinder system up to date yet, so there wasn't really a good way to case it out as far as to get a sausage press and to actually case them out. So I went with the ball idea, and I really, so far, really enjoy it. So I've got my shoulder cubed up, and it's upwards of like two pounds there. And then I've got... It called for six ounces. I think I ended up putting in eight just because I felt like, eh, that's not enough liver. I think I want to add some more. Like, I really want to taste the liver in this recipe. So six to eight ounces diced. 
I added two stocks of salary. I added um, a bunch of garlic. It loves garlic. I actually had six cloves of garlic uh, minced up in that. Uh, two types of peppers, a poblano and jalapeno. The poblano offers a unique flavor that is true. They, they usually use what they call the trinity, which would be onion, celery, bell pepper. But I chose not to go with the bell pepper. I went with the poblano, and then I wanted some heat in this sausage, so I used two jalapenos. Now, I did make it a cautious heat of both those peppers. I ended up seeding them and pulling the pith out, so it was just uh, the flesh of the the peppers that went into that. Uh, a whole onion got diced up. A whole bunch of salt. Uh, I think it called for, again, I'm going off the top of my head. I guess I could look at my notes, but that would take time. I think I was up to three full tablespoons of salt. Tablespoon and a half of black pepper. A teaspoon of chili powder. A teaspoon of cayenne and a teaspoon of paprika. All that got mixed together, and then that went in with the veggies, in with the meat, in with the vegetables. And all that is mixed together, and it needs to, I don't want to say marinade, but it needs those flavors to mix up. Just like a sausage. A sausage tastes better on day two after you've allowed those uh, spices and seasonings to be able to blossom, to open up, and to work their way throughout the dish. Same sort of thing here because essentially we are making a sausage. So I let that go overnight. Um, being in Michigan and it was cold, it just took a took an overnight into the garage. And so that's where that sat out on my freezer there. All right, so I brought it in the next day and was able to put it into a pot and went for a low stew. You wanted to first bring it up to boil so that it was rolling, and then you bring it back down to a simmer. Now, that simmer is going to be for like hour and a half to, to two hours. You want that meat to be fork tender. And you're also thinking, too, like, well, isn't that a long time for that liver to be in there as well? Yeah, that liver is going to get cooked all the way through, but it's it's going to be okay. Don't worry. So after that has gone through and it has simmered for a couple hours and you can fork, you can basically stick a fork in the pieces of meat, you're going to want to put a colander into another pan and then you're going to want to be able to strain out the meat, the veggies, the liver, everything. That's a whole piece. You want to be able to separate that from the liquid. Now, don't get rid of the liquid. We're going to need that. So I held off my liquid and I took those those pieces and ended up running it through my cleaver. So I have a you know an old cleaver and I ended up going back and forth and chopping the meat instead of going through from, through uh, my grinder. My grinder setup is not ready to go right now. It would not it would have taken more effort to do that than it would have to just use the cleaver. So chopping away that I go, maybe it took a little longer than a normal run through the grinder, but at the same time I would chop through and then I would fold the meat from the corners up on top and then run my chopper through again, mix it around, pile it back up, chop through again. 
And at first it didn't feel like I was doing anything, but then after probably about the fifth or sixth pass through, I really started to see it getting real fine, and I started to see that it was uh, beginning to work itself together like it could become something that would be packable because we're going to be making the balls out of this. While this was all being done, I've got rice cooking on the stove. And I end up going with a brown brown rice because that's what I had. You could go with a white rice. You could go with a quick rice. I had the cheap long version stuff. So, again, it was good to have that going while I was beginning this chopping session because by the time I was done, so was the brown rice. And those get incorporated together. I went with probably about four cups. It's like a one-to-one ratio of rice to uh, boudin ground at this point. So I mix those together, and it's yeah basically half and half rice and sausage. The last step of this is where we used our liquid. And you ladle that liquid back in, and then you continually to mix, not only to disperse uh, the meat and the rice, but you want to be able to incorporate that liquid as much as you can into uh, the mix because it's going to begin to absorb that. I do need to take a quick time out because we got to talk about that liquid. I forgot something that I tried out. So, uh, Tim Gunn uh, from uh, Live Wild, Eat Wild. Whew, took me a second. He had a great point as to if I was making a stock that I would want to use one of the trotters from a deer. If I'm making a deer stock, not only with all the bones that I'm putting in, but try using the trotter, or what he referred to as the hoof. And it's basically that lower section. Now, I ended up skimming out that lower section of what I would refer refer to as the hoof, and I found where the joint of where the hoof and the bone was at. I wasn't quite ready to just to stick the foot right into my stock pot, so I actually cut it off at that joint, but that bone alone had a ton of connective tissue uh, on it to be able to help to move the to articulate uh, the hoof and whatnot. So I ended up taking one of those and sticking at the bottom of the pot. So when I was doing my initial simmer, I had that in there getting some extra collagen that's going to work itself into my liquid. I think you can see where this is going. Let's fast forward to where we were at. I'm now ladling that liquid back into the pot, and I'm going to let this now uh, soak into uh, the mixture. I want to be able to you know, go ladle at a time so I'm not getting uh, soupy, but I want it to get pasty. When I get that pasty feel where I know like, hmm, after a little while, after this sets up, it's going to be real tacky. Um, I'm going to stop there with the liquid, put the plastic wrap on top, and then it's got to go and sit for a couple hours. I gave it three to four hours. Overnight would probably work better, but I gave it three or four more hours uh, out in the chilled garage that it was just going to set up. When I retrieved it, it was still a little soupy, but I could really feel where that collagen wanted to um, really hold things together. Where the what would be soupy at that point has now become tacky, has now helped it hold itself together. 
I used a melon ball scooper and I scooped in, uh, it was probably a little bit less than a golf ball. And I could then portion that out. I made the ball up and I stuck that onto a parchment lined baking sheet. Because what I did is I ended up lining these all up in there. I got 24 to a pan. I think I had, you know, four rows by six. You know, I had it at a nice big uh, amount of these things as I pulled out of it. Like if you're going for a big party, this is a good batch to make that off of. And then I took those uh, now made balls and I will put them into the freezer. And I let them freeze entirely. Here's where my thinking was on that, is that they were still a little soupy, so they needed to get a little bit more chilled for that collagen to set up. But then I was also thinking of storing these uh, boudin balls. I took six of, or excuse me, I took 12 to a party of four adults and a whole bunch of kids. Kids didn't even look at these things. But that amount of 12 was a great appetizer for the four adults. And here I have upwards of 48 of these things. So I froze them all. And then I then put uh, flour in a bag, in a Ziploc bag, poured in these, whatever amount that I wanted in. I was using 12s. Um, that seemed to work. So I put a dozen into a bag with the flour, shook it around first. And just even in that time, the condensation of the like starting the, the the ball starting to melt a little bit and having liquid on the side collected all that uh, flour and floured each one beautifully. That's going to be twofold. One that they don't don't stick to each other while they're in the freezer. They've got that flour coating that's going to keep them from sticking to all the other ones. Two, you need to go with the flour egg breadcrumb series here for the boudin ball, and this is how you finish it. Mind you, this is already a pre-cooked uh, uh, meal that we have got going on here. Your appetizer is already cooked, even at this bald, floured form. So all you're doing now is just merely warming it up and adding that textural crunch. So you get your egg whipped up, and then you've got, I used panko breadcrumbs, um, I ended up picking up like three of those things just because I, you know, finally that I found where they were at. And I've usually just made my own breadcrumbs or basically smashed up a whole bunch of saltine crackers or Ritz crackers. But this time I was like, you know what, let's go put the panko route. And so I took the frozen floured boudin ball, dropped it in the egg. From the egg, I pulled it out, stuck it in the panko, rolled it around, and then I lined up the basket with about four of those. Drop that into some really hot oil, and it was maybe a minute, two minutes in there. I was really looking at color at this point. I wanted a nice golden crust on the outside of that. I wanted that panko to just be that perfect golden uh, brown that I was going for. And when I pulled them out, I ended up taking one, and I could actually uh, pull it apart and in half. So just with the pinch of my fingers, I was able to separate that in half. The heat got all the way through that, leaving it not frozen in the middle. You know, we don't we don't have the uh, uh, the <laughs> the icy inside with the molten outside. We had it going all the way through, but then that beautifully crispy crust. And serving that up, 
the other night to uh, some good friends. They absolutely enjoyed it. I had one that one uh, one of the adults, not a big heat person, and I asked her to try it just for the fact that I knew she didn't like spice, but I wanted to see where the level of spice got. And she said, this is this is acceptable. This is fine. It did not overwhelm her. Um, we did find, though, that it does, the heat does build. So after she finished her boudin ball, she then made a comment that like, okay, I now taste the spice here at the end, whereas I had folks that love the spice, and they said, yeah, this could use a spicy dipping sauce if we're going to go with that real authentic Cajun flair. So I was happy to know that folks that are even, they love to stick to the mild side of things could enjoy these, but at the same time, there's there's room to play here with folks that really love the heat. It can go either way. So now, at our New Year's Eve party tonight, that's going to be what I'm bringing as well is going to be these boudin balls. I think they're going to absolutely work out great with folks. Um, I'm thinking maybe maybe to go with some sort of spicy ramelade or something with uh, horseradish sauce. I thought about going with like a like a cooling sour cream cucumber sort of thing uh, with it. If you, if folks are not into the the hot and spicy, but I think. For most of us, I think going with like a spicy remoulade or a, a mayonnaise with hot sauce and a seedy mustard and maybe some Worcestershire sauce in that, that would make a great dipping sauce that you could use. So anyway, that was my quick share that as we go along, that's something that we can glean from uh, from our from our quarry, that not only can we use a worked hard piece of meat, be it the shoulder, but we can use the liver that usually gets dis- discarded. And this is just one way to incorporate uh, more of our kill in this. And the fact that when you do make it, it makes a bunch, and then you can share this with others, whether they are other hunters, other anglers, or people that are completely new, and you can then show off why you pursue these animals. I know this has been an off-the-wall episode, that it's been me rambling, but I felt that it was a great conclusion to this year to take some of my ideas that maybe have been on the back burner to just finish those out, to tie up the bow, and to be able to you know, place a, a finished or a completed on as we finish this year. And so this year, this next year that's coming up, in 22, looking at the word self-reliant, how can I add more producing into my life rather than consuming? How can I consume less? How can I utilize what I have more? These are ideas that are going through my head. So rather than ooh and ah and wish for that next knife, why don't I just find a way to make old ones sharp.